chapter 1 again today. We're going to be there for a while. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. Last week we talked about verse 1, right? We just did a whole sermon on one verse. Why? Because it's such a critical, important verse to the, to the whole book of Mark and, and to the Christian life. We looked at uh, the good news, the gospel of Jesus, which is just the good news of, of the saving activity of God through Jesus Christ. God saves sinners. That's, that's the gospel. Every sermon that is preached from this pulpit will have something to do with the gospel. Because as we saw last week from Romans 1, it is the gospel that is the power of God to save sinners. It is the power of God for salvation. And it is also the means by which he sustains us. All right, So the gospel saves us and it sustains us. It does both. So it is extremely important. And then we looked at um, the two titles that Mark gives Jesus. Christ and Son of God. He's the long-awaited Christ, which means the Messiah, the Anointed One, the One that was going to come and save and bring salvation to His people. But He's not just any old Messiah. Right, they were looking for one particular Messiah. He was something different. He was also the Son of God. He is God Himself in the flesh come to save us. So Jesus is Savior and He is God Himself. And the rest of the book of Mark, as we'll see, is just kind of an unpacking of of those two terms and, and what it looks like uh, for Jesus to be Messiah and Son of God, who He is, and then what He did for us. So the book of Mark is, is all about Jesus Christ. But wait a second, you might be thinking, if you're already looking ahead in our verses today, you, you know, you, you're seeing that I'm saying it's going to be all about Jesus, but then what are the rest of our verses about today? Well, they're all about somebody else. All right, they're all about a guy named John the Baptist. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. John the Baptist, the guy that comes before Jesus. The book is all about Jesus, but we get kind of a little bit of an introduction, and a little bit of a preparation through this guy named John. Have you ever gone to a big music concert, right? There's always like one really big name band, but then there's all these other little kind of acts or bands before them, right? The point is the big band, and the act, the other bands kind of prepare the way for the big, for the big one. No one comes to see the little bands, but they come to see the headliner, right? And so those little bands kind of get you ready. They get you in the mindset. They, they prepare you and point you forward to the, to the main event. It's the same with a, with a fight, a, a boxing match, right? There's always one big title match, but there's a bunch of other little fights kind of leading up to it that, that get you in the right mindset, that get you prepared for the big fight, right? So these things that come before prepare the way for the main event, Right? And that's what's going on here in Mark. John is preparing the way. He's getting us ready. He's pointing us forward to the main event. And that is Jesus Christ. So this morning we're going we're gonna to look at John before we spend the rest of our time looking solely at Jesus. And um, we're going to see what we can learn about John and why he is so important. All right? This book's all about Jesus. Why give us this stuff about John? It's got to be there for a reason. So we're going to break this passage down into two parts. We're going to look first at the person of John the Baptist, and then we're going to look second at the message of John the Baptist. The person of John and the message of John. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, 
You can follow along with whatever you'd like, or you can find the text printed there inside your bulletin. So this is God's Word. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's, let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you for this time. I would thank you for your word. I pray right now that you would focus our minds and our hearts on the text and on, on what we um, see in the text, what you want us to learn from the text. Father, teach us this morning. Uh, change our hearts this morning. Father, show us our sin. Lead us to repentance, Father, and show us Jesus Christ and, and his glory and your mercy and love for us displayed uh, through him. So, Father, I pray that this would be a time that was about you and, and not about me. I pray that you would get all the glory. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first, the, the person of John. Just who was he? And John is introduced to us first through a couple of verses from the Old Testament. And this is really important. Just like Mark did in verse 1, we looked at last week. Remember, he started with that word, beginning, which, which linked what he was doing all the way back to Genesis. Well, he's doing the same thing here. And these quotations from the Old Testament, they, they teach us something. Mark is explicitly linking John the Baptist and Jesus, who's going to come next, with what has come before in the Old Testament. Jesus is not some afterthought or some plan B of God. God kind of didn't get to the Old Testament. It was like, ah, that didn't work out. Uh, you know, I better come up with something else. I, I got to come up with another plan. I'll try, I'll try Jesus this time. No, no, no. The plan all along was Jesus. All right? And sometimes we Christians tend to treat the Old Testament like this. You know, we don't really know anything about it. Uh, we hand out New Testaments without the Old Testament. We, we hardly ever preach sermons from the Old Testament. And what Mark is doing here with these few verses is he's making a very clear link, a continuity between Jesus and the Old Testament. All right, you, you can't get rid of the Old Testament. It's not like Jesus is here. Now we have the new one. Ah, we don't have to worry about that old stuff anymore. Okay, if you go and start reading the New Testament, you'll quickly see just how much it relies on the Old Testament. The New Testament authors, they're constantly quoting um, the Old Testament. And you honestly can't even really understand Jesus without some sort of knowledge of the Old Testament. We, he can't divorce these two, all right? So Mark is very clearly saying to us, Old Testament is important. We, we can't dismiss it and we can't ignore it. So let's look at those Old Testament verses and, and see what they tell us about John. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. First thing we have to address is, well, where do we find this in the book of Isaiah? Where, where is this passage in Isaiah? Well, it's, it's actually, it's not in Isaiah. Okay, that's a little bit confusing. Um, so what's going on here? Actually, Mark 2, 1, 2, through 3, these verses are a composite, or a couple of different verses and prophecies from the Old Testament. We got one from Exodus, one's coming from Malachi 3.1, and then part of it is coming from Isaiah 40, verse 3. 
So it was a common literary practice back then is they would take different prophecies or different verses from different prophets and then they would attribute it to the, to the most important of the prophet. So they would attribute this to Isaiah because he was the most significant of these guys and he was the one whose part of this passage is the longest. So this is a normal thing that they would do back then. All right? so, so don't be concerned that this specific passage isn't in Isaiah. Exodus, Malachi, and Isaiah. And Mark kind of takes them and puts them together and attributes them to the most important one. So what are these verses? What do these Old Testament prophecies tell us about John? Well, we're told that he's a messenger. He comes and prepares the way for who? For, he comes and prepares the way for somebody. And this is where it instantly gets very interesting. If you were to go back and look at Malachi 3.1, where the first part of the prophecy comes from, in its context, you see that the messenger that is predicted comes not to prepare the way for any old guy. He doesn't come to prepare the way for the Messiah, but he comes to prepare the way for God himself, for Yahweh. We just read the passage a few minutes ago, Isaiah 40. In verse 3, it says, prepare the way for the Lord. And it says the Lord there in all caps. And remember, when you've got the Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, that's God's personal name, Yahweh. All right, so this predicted messenger, he comes to prepare the way for the coming of God himself. And that's, that's huge. All right, I had a New Testament professor in college who used to love to, complain, to claim that, that Jesus wasn't God in the book of Mark. That Mark never claimed that Jesus was God or that Jesus himself never claimed to be God in the book of Mark. But the professor obviously wasn't paying attention because here it is again for the second time already and we're only in the second book. The messenger prepares the way for the coming of Yahweh, of God. John the Baptist is the predicted messenger. John the Baptist, we'll see, prepares the way for Jesus. Therefore, Jesus is God. All right, but we're going to come back to that. Today, our focus is on John the Baptist. So he's a messenger. He's, he's preparing the way, and it says he comes from the wilderness. Here again, we see that understanding the Old Testament is really important for, for understanding the New. The wilderness is a critical place in the Old Testament for, for the life of the nation of Israel. In Israel's history, the wilderness was a place of repentance, and it was thus a place of, of God's grace. The wilderness is God would, he would take his people um, to deliver them. So you have the Exodus, right? They're in captivity in Egypt. And where does God take them? They cross the Red Sea and they go to the wilderness. And it is there that he reveals himself to them. It's the same thing in the prophets. Hosea 2.14, God is speaking to Israel and he says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And he goes on to talk about speaking with him and loving with him and having mercy on them in the wilderness. So the wilderness is a very important theme in the Old Testament. The prophets were always associated with the wilderness, and that's where John comes from. And that's where he's ministering in the wilderness. But, as we're going to see next week, the wilderness was also a place of, of great testing and trial in the Old Testament. And, and that's where we're going to find Jesus um, next week when we get back to him. So skip down to verse 6 real quick, and we'll learn a little bit more about the person of John before we look at his message. Verse 6 is interesting. It says, Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey. Well, that's kind of weird, right? I mean, can you imagine a guy like that showing up on Roosevelt on the corner and preaching dressed like that? You know, this guy would really draw a crowd. And it doesn't, doesn't that kind of seem like a random thing to include in Scripture, right? Like, who cares what, what John was wearing? Why are you telling us what John the Baptist was dressed like? 
But nothing is in the Scripture by accident. And sometimes we tend to skip over these seemingly random little things much to our detriment. But it's through these pointless, seemingly pointless details that we are revealed much about John's identity. Listen to a verse from a thousand years before him, from, from 2 Kings 1.8. It says, They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. It was Elijah the Tishbite. John, here in Mark, is described in exactly the same way as Elijah is described in the book of Kings. Don't miss this. This is, this is really big. Mark is very clearly trying to link John the Baptist with Elijah the prophets. Alright? And the Jews at that time were, were doing the same thing. Turn in your Bibles. Turn over to John chapter 1. We're going to look and get a little bit more information from John chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. Where we, can, we can get a little bit more knowledge about what's going on in this passage. John, you know, he's, he's preaching, he's baptizing. All of Judea and Jerusalem are coming out. He's, he's starting to cause a big stir. So Jerusalem, right, the capital, the, the religious authorities, they send some people out to, to figure out kind of what's going on. Let's, let's question this John and, and see what he's all about. And they, they question him, and the first things that he says is that he emphatically denies that he is the Christ. He says, I'm not him. I am not the Messiah. But then look there in verse 21. What's their follow-up question? Then they say, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. But wait. Why did they ask him if he was Elijah? That kind of seems a little bit random. But they asked him because on the very last page of your Old Testament, on the very last page, the very last promise that God gives us before the closing of the Old Testament is there in Malachi 4, 5. And he says, God says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. The Jews knew. They knew their Old Testaments. They knew that God had promised to send Elijah before the coming of the Messiah. Elijah, remember, he didn't die. He was, he was caught up into heaven. And God here promises that he's going to send Elijah back before he sends his Messiah. Even today, actually, when Jews gather to celebrate the Passover meal, they have this Seder meal that maybe you're familiar with. If you go to one of those, they usually leave an open chair at this meal. It's not because someone didn't show up. The Seder, the open chair is there for Elijah. Because they knew that God had promised to send Elijah before the Messiah came. And they are still waiting to this day for him to come. And the Jews 2,000 years ago, they recognized that there is something very Elijah-like about this John the Baptist. So they asked him. And remember, these guys, they're under the rules of the Romans. They're, they're miserable. They're being oppressed. And they're longing for their Savior to show up, to come in, and to free them, and to save them. Are you Elijah? And John says, no, I am not. Wait a second. What does Jesus have to say about this whole thing? Now flip over a couple books earlier to Matthew. Turn to Matthew 17. We're going to look and see what Jesus had to say about this whole John thing. Matthew 17, verses 10 through 13. We've just had the transfiguration, right? Jesus has revealed himself in all of his glory, in all of his power to his disciples. And that, that's done. And now they're, they're traveling back down the mountain after this has been happening. And the disciples are asking him some questions. And they ask him there in verse 12, or they ask him why Elijah must come first, right? So they're thinking of this prophecy back in Malachi. And they say, Jesus, what's all this talk about Elijah? Why does it say that he has to come first? And Jesus replies there in verse 12. Jesus says, But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. 
so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. John says, I'm not Elijah. Jesus says, he's Elijah. All right? What's going on here? Well, well it's pretty simple. They're, they're both correct. John is right in saying that he's not Elijah because he's not the actual, literal, physical person of Elijah. Right? It's, they're two different people. But if you look in Luke 1.17, the angel shows up to Zechariah, right? And he kind of gives Zechariah a prophecy about this John the Baptist and what he's going to do and what he's going to be like. And listen to what he says. The angel says to Zechariah, talking about John, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the power and spirit of Elijah. Okay? So the ministry of Elijah is fulfilled in John the Baptist, who we're told works in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So Jesus is perfectly correct in saying that John is Elijah. The, the prophecies weren't about like the specific, actual, literal person of Elijah showing up, but one like Elijah in the spirit and power of Elijah, and that person is John the Baptist. So that's the person of John. He's the messenger that comes to prepare the way of the coming of God himself, and he is the, the last great Old Testament prophet in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's the person, but, but what about the message of John? We see that in verses 4, 7, and 8. So let, let's start with verse 4. It says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Baptism for the repentance of, for the, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, we've got to remember, I'm from the South. John here isn't operating in the Baptist, modern-day American South, where... Everybody is a Christian, and everybody has been baptized, you know, four or five times, you know, just to be safe, right? Everybody gets baptized down there. Now, this was kind of something unique, right? There wasn't a lot of baptism going on back then. Something different is happening. If we look back at the Old Testament, we don't see anything kind of like this baptism. But there are some things that are similar. There are some ritual kind of spiritual purifications and washings that, that priests would go to before they would enter the presence of God. And then in Exodus 19, 10... God is about to make his covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. And he tells them, he says, get ready, wash your clothes and purify yourself. And a few verses before that, in verse 6, God calls Israel. He says, they're they're a kingdom of priests, right? And they're a holy nation. And Peter takes this idea and he echoes it in 1 Peter 2.9 where he calls the church a royal priesthood and a holy nation. So John is emphasizing the point that it's not just the priests that need this washing before, the present, before coming into the presence of God. He's saying it's everybody. The priesthood was coming to an end, okay? And God is in effect saying, get ready. Prepare your hearts because I'm coming. Repent and be ready. But just like baptism today and just like the Lord's Supper, which we'll celebrate at the end of the service, John's baptism, it was just a symbol. The washing of the water didn't do any actual spiritual purifying. It was just a visible visible representation of an inward change, of a spiritual reality. Baptism does not and cannot save. Only God can save, and only God can change our hearts and then lead us to faith and repentance. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is, this is such an important idea that we're going to camp out here for a few minutes. Almost 500 years ago, the, the anniversary is coming up in a few years, 
the year 1517, Martin Luther inadvertently starts a revolution by posting one of the most important documents beside the Bible in all of history. He takes his 95 theses and he nails them on the wall of a church in Wittenberg, Germany. Super important document. Sparked the Reformation. And what did, those, what did that document open with? The first words of the 95 Theses are this. Martin Luther writes, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Alright, consider that claim in conjunction with a few verses. Mark 1.15, which we'll do in two weeks, and then Matthew 3.2, Jesus calls us and says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Then Luke 13.3 says that unless you repent, you will perish. And then Acts 3.19 says that you must repent so that your sins may be blotted out. Alright, so it appears that this whole repentance thing is, is kind of important. So let's, let's talk about it for a little bit and, and figure that out. Alright, our word repentance comes from the Greek word metanoia. And it just literally means a changing of one's mind. Alright, that's what the word repentance means. A change of mind. It has to do with the mind and it has to do with the will. So right off the bat, we know that repentance is not just like this really bad emotional feeling of guilt, like oh, I feel terrible, I did something bad. That's, that's not repentance. Right? It, it's a change of decision. It's a new course of life. It's changing your mind and your will. It is a complete changing in the direction of your life. Listen, we tend to think of repentance on a very small scale. Like, all right, I told a lie. I need to repent of that lie. And that's true. That's exactly what you should do. But repentance is so much more than that. Repentance involves the totality of our lives. It's not just about the little white lies you tell. It's not about thinking bad thoughts about other people. These aren't just the things that you need to repent of. We think of repentance kind of like a Catholic confessional booth, right? You do some bad things for a while, you build them up, you build them up, and you go sit in the booth, you confess all your sins, and then you leave feeling better. Alright, that's repentance. No, that is not biblical repentance. True repentance is concerned with the entire direction of our lives. It's big picture, alright? It's the question, are you trusting in yourself? Are you doing whatever it is that you can to prove yourself, to validate your existence? Are you working and striving to prove that your life has some sort of meaning or purpose or value? It's basically the question of, are you trying to save yourself? Or are you trusting and resting in what Jesus Christ has done for you to save you and give your life meaning, purpose, and value? That's what repentance is about. It's about your entire life. It's a whole life thing. What are you living for? Who are you serving? Now, if you're here, and and a crowd this size, there are definitely some of you. If you're here this morning, and you're not a Christian, you might be thinking, what's all this talk about sin and and repentance and and salvation? And That kind of sounds a little old-fashioned. You know, who actually talks about such things these days? Well, the Bible does, and, and, and that's why we do it. And it is actually extremely relevant to your life, whether you're a Christian or not. Because listen, every one of us, whether we know it or not, we believe certain things about the kind of the big picture, ultimate questions in life, right? Like, why am I here? Who am I? Where did I come from? What's the meaning of my life? Kind of, what's going to happen to me after I die? Even atheists, even the most staunch disbeliever in God has certain beliefs about life and about reality. Everyone has some sort of worldview, right, is what it's called. 
kind of the, the code of beliefs that you live by. Everybody has one, whether that's biblical Christianity or whether that's just some hodgepodge of something that you created, some own personal code that you have constructed. Everyone believes something and everyone has one of these personal codes or standards that they try to live up to. But what's interesting is if you're honest with yourself, it becomes pretty quickly clear that you can't even live up to the own standard that you set for yourself. It's not like you just can't live up to the Ten Commandments or something. You can't even live up to the own standard that you kind of hold your own self to, no matter how loose that standard is. Even if you're not a Christian, sometimes you do things that, that you feel guilt about, that something just feels off, like something, I, I feel bad about that. And the Bible says that that feeling doesn't make any sense unless that there's someone you're guilty before. And the Bible says that that someone is God. The Bible says that He created us. And as our Creator, He has certain rights over us. And as our Creator, He knows what is best for us, what we should do, and, and how we should live. And so He tells us, and He tells us in the Bible. But what's interesting is that's not the only place He tells us, actually. In Romans 1, it tells us that God writes the standard, this, this law, this moral code. He writes it on the hearts of every single one of us. Right? That's all. That's why every one of us, when we do certain things, we feel guilt. We feel like we've done something wrong because God's law, whether we believe it or not, has been written on our hearts. And we know that there is that higher standard that we're not living up to. And the God, God says the existence of that feeling of guilt proves that you're falling short of Him. It proves that we need His help if we are to have any hope of meaning or purpose in our lives. Or more importantly, if we are to have any hope of salvation and reconciliation to Him in eternity. So all this talk of sin and repentance is actually extremely relevant to us if the Bible is correct. Because deep down, you know that something is wrong. You can't put your finger on it, but you know that something is wrong. And God calls that something wrong sin, and He calls us to come clean through John here. He calls us to actually acknowledge that something is wrong and, that, and to ask Him for His help. Repentance. Let's, let's talk about it a little bit more. It's a turning away from sin. That's a very good definition of repentance. A turning away from sin. Visualize it like this. In sin, okay, I am walking in this direction, pursuing what it is that I want to pursue. Right? I'm doing whatever I want contrary to what God wants. Right? And in repentance, how we usually think of it is, we get to the point where we're like, man, this, this doesn't feel right. This is having some bad consequences for my life. I'm going to stop doing this sin. So we turn to here. We stop the sinning. We're sinning. We stop. We turn 90 degrees and we get to this point And we say, all right, we've repented. All right? That's what we think that repentance generally is. But listen to this. We are so sinful, and we are so twisted, and we are so prone to, to kind of try to save ourselves that we often get repentance wrong. We think that this is a 90-degree turn. All right, I've stopped sinning. I've repented. But that's not repentance. That is legalism. And the difference between repentance and legalism is the difference between life and death. True biblical repentance is more than just the stopping of sin. Right? That's not enough. True biblical repentance is both a turning away from sin and our attempts to save ourselves and a turn to God to trust Him as our only hope of salvation. 
Biblical repentance is a full 180 degree turn from ourselves and our own way of doing things to God and His way of doing things. Repentance does not stop at 90 degrees. It does not stop here. It is a complete change in the direction of our entire lives. Turning from our own way and turning to God's way. The full turn is absolutely necessary. Many people get stuck right here at the 90 degree mark. And that is a very dangerous place to be. Alright? That's where all the other religions are. They say if you just stop doing the bad things, if you just make the 90 degree turn, stop doing this, do this, then God will will bless your efforts and, and God will save you. But that's the very thing that John and Jesus are trying to fight against. John's message was one of repentance, complete, total, life-encompassing change. But what is the call for, for the need for repentance? What does that imply? And this is what got John in trouble with the religious authorities of the day. This is what would eventually get John's head cut off. All right? that's, that's how things end for John. I'll spoil the story for you. To tell people that they need to repent is to tell people basically that they're wrong. Right? If you paid any attention today, the worst thing that you can tell anyone is that they're wrong about something. Right? No one wants to be told that they're wrong or that they're doing something wrong. And no one particularly wants to be told that actually their very heart down to their very core is, is sinful and evil and separated from God. People don't like to hear that. We don't like to hear that we're the problem. We like to think that the problem is out there. Right? The problem is everybody else out there. We're, you know, we're pretty good. We've got it figured out. You know, we come to church, uh, we give, uh, we take the Lord's Supper. You know, why are you talking to us about repentance? We're the ones in here at church. We're, we're pretty good. All the problems are, are out there. And I think that is actually one of, one of the troubling problems with, with certain branches of, of fundamentalism, some of the stuff kind of I grew up with. It's, it's their tendency to kind of demonize everyone out there and blame all those other people out there for all of our problems. And John and Jesus come to us today and they say to us, it's not out there, that's the problem. They say the problem is in here. They say the problem is your heart. In Matthew 15, uh, verses 10 through 20, Jesus is saying, he goes through kind of this long teaching about, it's not what goes into a person that defiles or corrupts them. He says it's what comes out of the heart. The problem is not out there with all the sin and the evil out there. The problem is not your circumstances or, or what has happened to you in the past. The problem is your heart. And Jesus says, out of our hearts comes, listen to this, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Good grief. These are the things that Jesus says are coming out of our hearts. The problem is inside of us. And you'll notice, if you just go read the Bible as much as you want, you're not going to find a list anywhere of cultural things that we can and cannot do. Because the Bible is very clear that it's not about the specific things that we do, it's about the heart. And that's what the problem with the Pharisees was. They thought that they could keep a bunch of rules and keep them really well and then be right with God. And that's why this idea throughout church history where we're going to go, we're going to build these monasteries, right? We're going to keep the world out there and we're going to put people inside these monasteries and block the bad evil world out there and kind of have this nice little safe place. But the problem with that is once you put actual people inside the walls, you bring the sin and the evil inside the walls. 
Fundamentalism, in a way, some forms of it, tries to act like a monastery like this. This is what I did when I was growing up, when I was younger. I would try to throw up these walls and construct these walls that would say, all right, I don't do this, I don't do this, I'm a good Christian. I've got it all figured out. We try to, we try to make this arbitrary list of rules that, that you can't find in the Bible that basically say, follow these things and you're good to go. Right? That's kind of what this teaches. But the, and it kind of says, you know, if you want to be a good Christian, you've got to do these certain things, right? This is what it was when I was growing up. Um, no movies, you know, no secular music. Um, dancing is the worst thing you could ever do. Um, cards are bad. Um, you can't, you have to only sing hymns, you know, you've got to read a certain translation of the Bible. We construct all of these things that say, do these things, and then you're a good Christian. But this is legalism, right? And this is deadly. We try to pull ourselves back from the world and say, if we can just separate from all that evil out there, then we'll be good. Then we'll be pure. Then we'll be safe. Then we'll be true Christians. But it doesn't work because the problem's not out there. The problem is in here. And it's not just certain fundamentalist stuff that I grew up with that kind of has this tendency. That's just an extreme example. We all, as sinful human beings, tend to do the same thing. We all think that our problems are because of some other force or some other people out there. Or someone has hurt us in the past or someone has done this in the past. So we have all these issues and then it's, then it's their fault, right? Everybody blames somebody. The, the 99%, right? They, they camp out on the street for months and months and they don't do anything and they just complain about the 1%, right? It's, it's all their fault. If the 1% would just do this, this, and this, everything would be fine. But then what's the 1% doing? Well, they've got really nice houses, so they're not camping in the streets. But, but they're sitting there complaining about the 99%. They're saying, oh, they're lazy, and they're not working, and they're causing all of our problems. We all think if someone would just take care of that group or that problem out there, then we'll be okay. And we always try to blame the sinful, evil, terrible world out there. It's bringing us down. It's, it's evil Hollywood. It's, it's the liberal media. It's, oh, it's the terrible government. If we could just take care of those problems then everything will be okay. And the gospel blows up any such notion. John the Baptist comes, and as we'll see in two weeks, Jesus comes and says the same thing. They say, repent, which clearly means that the problems are not out there. They're in here. The real problem is your heart, and the real problem is my heart. John and Jesus show up. They say the primary problem is not out there. They say the primary problem is you. Years ago, a writer I like, his name is G.K. Chesterton. He was, a, he was a famous author about 100 years ago. And he wrote into a British newspaper once in the early part of the century. They are running this series of editorials. And they are asking all these really prominent, famous people, kind of in, in England at that time, to, to write into the newspaper and give kind of a little essay answering this question. What is wrong with the world today? So each essay would start off with, the problem with the world today is this, and they'd kind of give their explanation. So all these famous you know, political figures, religious figures, all these guys were writing in to say, what's the problem with the world, and they'd give their explanation. But Chesterton, he, he decided to write in as well, and he writes a very short, I think brilliant letter. Chesterton, he submits, he writes his letter into the newspaper, and he writes, Dear Times, the problem with the world is me. Signed, sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. That's it. And anyone who really understands the gospel feels the same way. The real problem with our lives and the real problem with the world is the selfishness inside each and every one of our own hearts. It is the self-centeredness of our own hearts. It is the flaws of our hearts. It is the self-deception in our own hearts. The problem is our sin. 
Listen, if your tendency is to sit down and watch the news or to read Facebook and to start to get really frustrated because all of that evil, bad stuff that's happening out there, you might be missing the point. It's not the terrible, evil, bad world out there that's holding you down. It's our own terrible, sinful parts that are our problems. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things, and it is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And Jesus comes to us, and he calls us to repent. Our concern must be first and foremost with our own hearts and our own lives. We must repent. And absolutely necessary to the idea of repentance is the acknowledgement and the admission that you're the problem and that I'm the problem and that our hearts are broken and that according to Ephesians 2, 5, they're not just broken, but that we are dead in our trespasses and in our sins. And that's why the gospel is so amazing. It is simultaneously the declaration that you are so much more wicked than you ever thought that you were, but at the same time that in Christ you are more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. And such a realization, such a transformation, it doesn't lead to legalism and and cutting ourselves off from the world and and anger at those terrible sinners out there, but it breaks our hearts for them. It, It opens our eyes to the fact that we were just like them and that we would still be so today if it were not for the grace of God. I'll turn your Bibles to Titus 3. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Um, Titus 3, Paul's writing to the young pastor Titus. We're going to look at the first four or five verses just for a second. Paul is writing and he's telling us how we should treat all people in Titus 3. All people. Verses 1 and 2, they say, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. This is how we are called in the Bible to relate to everyone. And if you go back and study Titus, you'll see that chapter 2 is kind of about our relationship with fellow believers. And chapter 3 is pretty clearly about our relationship with non-believers. And this is how we are called to relate to them, even to our enemies. Why? Paul continues in verse 3. Because, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So we treat them kindly, and we love and respect them because we were just like them. But that's then where it gets really good, verses 4 and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Why? Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Right? Righteous works don't come out of a dead, desperately sick heart. But He saved us according to His own mercy. God saves us, and it very clearly says it's not because you are good, it's not because you are righteous, but it is because He was merciful. That's the gospel. And an understanding and an encounter with the real gospel transforms us from verse 3, foolish, malice, envy, hatred, and the like, to verses 1 and 2, gentleness, kindness, perfect courtesy, etc. A life actually changed by the gospel should never be marked by aggression and and hostility and anger and and quarreling and and things of that nature. When God saves us, He changes our hearts. And we realize that the problem is inside of us, not out there. And this frees us to, to love our neighbors as Christ commands us, to seek their good and to preach the gospel to them out of love. Both John and Jesus are going to call us to repentance. It comes up over and over again 
and the New Testament. We're called to acknowledge our dead, sinful hearts and to admit that there's nothing that we can do about it and that we must turn to and trust in Christ as our perfect and complete substitute. He is our only hope of salvation. All right, let's go back to the text for a second. Skip to the end, verses verses 7 and 8 as we wrap up. It says, And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John's message was, was first one of repentance, but here we see that John's primary message and function is that phrase, After me comes another. John's message wasn't about himself. His message wasn't repentance just for the sake of being a better person, right? That just leads to death. John worked and preached solely to point people forward to Jesus Christ. There's another one coming. And he's the real deal. He's the main event. I'm just the warm-up. I exist only to prepare the way for him and to point people towards him. And this is the attitude that every one of us must have. This is a very Christian attitude. Complete and utter humility before God. When we realize um, who we really are and what our heart is really like and how we didn't save ourselves but God saved us by His mercy, we begin to kind of start to feel this way about ourselves. Don't, don't look at me. Don't give me any credit. It's all about Him. It's all about Him. Look at Him. John says, I'm not even, I'm not even worthy to untie His sandals. And this doesn't quite hit home with us uh, today in our context um, because we don't quite understand just how disgusting feet were 2,000 years ago. Listen, they only wore open sandals. It was very dirty and it was very dusty and they didn't bathe quite as regularly as we did. So feet were disgusting. And the washing of feet and the taking off of sandals was the lowest of the low tasks. Right? It was actually, it wasn't even good enough for, for regular Jewish slaves to do. Right? It was only reserved for for the like Gentile, non-Jewish, kind of alien, foreign slaves. Right? It's the lowest of the low. And John says that he's not even good enough to do the most disgusting thing imaginable for Jesus. Compared to him, we are nothing. And we must realize that if we are ever going to be brought to a place of repentance. And finally, he says when Jesus comes, he's going to baptize not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. John's baptism was symbolic. It was provisional. It was, in, it was just there until the real thing showed up. But again, if you look back at the Old Testament, you'll see that the giving of the Holy Spirit was reserved only for God. Only God could give and dispense of the Holy Spirit. So here we go again. Jesus is God. He's doing something that only God can do. And He gives us His Holy Spirit, which is so huge, because the Spirit applies to us what Jesus accomplishes for us. It is the Spirit that speaks to us through the Word. It is the Spirit that brings our hearts to life. It is the Spirit that dwells within us and and sanctifies us and shapes us and makes us more like Christ. Jesus accomplishes, the Spirit applies. John baptizes with water. He points forward. Jesus actually does it. Jesus actually purifies. He actually saves and changes our hearts. And Jesus and the Holy Spirit, they come and they point to Christ. Everybody is pointing an arrow at Jesus Christ. It's all about Him. So, so that's John the Baptist. He's, he's the messenger. He's the one kind of preparing us for the one to come. He's preparing the way for the coming of God Himself in Jesus Christ. And He comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah. 
And his message was one of preparation. Repent, because he's coming. Get ready. But don't look at me. Look at him. The ministry of John the Baptist was all about Jesus Christ. And the ministry of Woodside Community Church must likewise be all about Jesus Christ. But repentance is the necessary, critical first step. There is no salvation without repentance. Jesus doesn't come in a few verses and say, Believe in me, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's not what he says. He says, Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repentance is a necessary first step. We can't just say a magic prayer. We can't just walk on out. We have to repent. So let us as a church, let us be aware and concerned about the sin and the weakness within our own hearts. I, I pray that we'll be known as a people of, of personal repentance. Not as a group of kind of inwardly focused people that have no engagement with the outside world. We are a people that are changed by the gospel and then we go out and try to change the world with the gospel. God working through us. And let us pray that God will protect us from the deadly disease of legalism. Legalism is opposed to the gospel. A list of do's and don'ts cannot and will not ever save you. Only Jesus Christ will. So we have to give up all of your attempts to try to keep all the rules so that you'll look good and moral and pure. And admit that you are not. And I'm not. We are all sinners saved by grace. Not by rules. I pray that we will be a people that are known and marked by that grace. So, so what do you do this morning if you're here and you're not a Christian? Repent. What do you do if you're here this morning and you are a Christian? The exact same thing. Repent. Repentance isn't just for the unsaved. That's why the religious people of, of Jesus' day were, were so offended. They were being told that they needed repentance and they didn't like being told that. No, I'm already, I'm already a Christian. No, I'm already saved. I don't, I don't need to worry about that stuff. Repentance is for all of us. All of life is repentance. All right, a Christian is not someone who never sins. A Christian is someone who, when they sin, and they will, they repent. They go straight to the cross. They lay it directly at Jesus' feet. They confess their sin, and they rest in the fact that their salvation is not dependent on their own goodness, but on Christ's goodness. The only person who ever lived who didn't have to repent. Pray 2 Timothy 2.25 this morning, that God would grant you Repentance. That should be a constant prayer of our hearts. God, grant me repentance. We're all sinners. We were all dead in our trespasses, according to Ephesians 2. But by God's grace, He can save us. He can bring a dead, terribly, wickedly sick heart back to life. And He can grant you faith and repentance this morning because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this time. Thank you for just the extreme blessing of getting to come and study your word and and to talk about your word. Father, I pray right now that your spirit would be working. Um, Nothing that that I said, Father, can can change hearts, can lead to repentance, can lead to salvation. Father, we need your Holy Spirit. And John tells us, he says that Christ will come baptizing with the spirit. So, Father, we ask for your spirit in this place right now. Convict us of sin. Father, lead us to a place of repentance and, and trust in you. I pray that we would be a people who are always repenting, Father, that, we would, that it would be a normal thing, become a normal thing in this place to, to confess our sin and, and to repent and to work together and to, to help each other and disciple each other. Father, we're all sinners. Father, we do not deserve your grace. We have no goodness, we have no righteousness to offer you, Father. 
But you loved us anyways through your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for Jesus. Father, make us all about Jesus Christ. Everything that we do in this place, I pray that it would be for the purpose of proclaiming his name and of honoring him. Father, I thank you for this time. And I pray all of this only in the name of Jesus.